All right, so Luke chapter 9, questions are on the screen. Uh, take, take note of those as we are going to respond with those at the end of our, our time together. Um, if, if you've ever had kids, uh, which most of y'all probably have, um, or have, uh, if, if you have a three-year-old, right, that's kind of like this, this peak of asking a lot of questions, right? Uh, because they're really starting to discover things and see things, and of course they can communicate and they can understand, they can smart off, uh, things like that. Um, and, and we get a lot of questions from our three-year-old as well as from our other used-to-be three-year-olds and soon to upcoming another three-year-old. Um, there's a lot of questions of what? What is that, Daddy? What is that, Daddy? And if you don't acknowledge, I mean, it's just, it's, it's relentless. I mean, it's just, and, and I don't think she knows, like, I don't think she knows that it's really annoying, right? I think she just knows that I, Daddy hasn't answered her question or Daddy hasn't said anything, you know, and then you're just like, okay, you know. And then after the what comes the, the why, that's right. Why? Why, Daddy? Why? Um, you know, when, when we were younger, um, and, and this younger generation probably can't relate to this, but when, when I was younger, and I think for some of our other older people as well, has been older than me, that is, we used to, when we had questions, and, and we had whys and whats, we used to have to go look in encyclopedias. Um, in fact, I think a lot of people are probably just getting rid of their encyclopedias. It's just kind of sad. Um, I remember having to open up recyclopedias and do research at home or go to the library and find those things. Now people just ask Siri and Google and Alexa and believe them, right? They actually will believe <laughs> them, and, and that's if they can even understand what you're, um, what you're saying. Questions are good. Questions are good. Our, our three-year-old is, is made at, three, year old, at three, three years old to ask a lot of questions. She's supposed to do those things, right? And, and even now at 37, I still ask a lot of questions. And the older I get, it seems like I still have more questions. They're just not as relentless as maybe Lydia would, would do or, or ask. And, and, and I, have, I, have a, I have a bachelor's degree in theology. I have a master's in, in, in divinity. But yet the more I study and the older I get, the, truthfully, the, what I realize is I'm really a master of nothing. Like the audacity of Southern Seminary to give me a master's of divinity is just beyond me. And not because I'm like a moron, I didn't earn it or something, but to call me a master of divinity when really there's so much here that I still have so many questions out. I'm not a master of this at all, like a master mechanic maybe of fixing a car. Um, I, I still have a lot of questions. I still ask a lot of questions. The more I study, memorize, listen, you know, I ask a lot of questions of these things that I don't understand and I don't know. And it, that doesn't discourage me. It doesn't keep me from continuing to ask questions, but instead it actually strengthens me to dig more and more. So it's good for us to ask questions. But another way questions are really helpful and useful is when a teacher knows how to ask thoughtful, intellectual, intentional, precise questions to their students. That is a great way for students to 
to learn because it not only it tests them on what they're supposed to know, but it also challenges them on what they know. That's why we take tests. That's why students take tests. It's to challenge them. It's why teachers ask these questions. And it teaches them to think critically about what they know and then how what they know applies to, to, to life. Good teachers ask good questions to their students. Um, the kind of questioning and answering I think used to be uh, very uh, very prominent in, in our culture used to encourage a lot of, uh, a lot of discussion. And, and I know I'm kind of painting with a, with a, a, a broad uh, brush, but it seems like in our culture now that at least as a whole, we are completely unable to have mature conversations that ask legitimate questions to one another challenging what we believe. Like, we're, we're not even allowed to ask the question and challenge maybe certain notions that other people uh, believe. Nobody wants to listen and learn or explain or critically think about what they uh, uh, believe, but rather what everybody wants to do is win an argument and destroy the opposition uh, and, and just shut them down completely. Call them certain names or whatnot. And, and how... How this, this lack of real questioning and answering has just debilitated our ability to have real conversations with one another, real debates with, with uh, one another. Jesus, when he was 12 years old, if you guys remember, we studied this in, in Luke. When Jesus was 12 years old, he was taken to the temple uh, for the Passover feast. And at the end of the feast, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and, and hung out at the temple with the different teachers that were there. And while he was there, remember his parents left and didn't know that he was missing. He thought that they were with like an uh, 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 aunt or an uncle or something like that. And, was, and, and they didn't even know. So three days, Jesus was at the temple, temple and he was listening to the teachers and he was answering their questions as well as he was asking them questions and the answers and the questions that he was asking and answering they marveled at jesus shows us that good questions at the right time are meaningful and helpful meaningful and helpful we see this throughout the gospels right isn't this how jesus teaches you've heard it said but i say to you he asks questions. He asks questions of the religious leaders. He asks questions of his, of his disciples, and he challenges them. And this morning in our passage, Jesus is going to ask us some profound questions. He's going to ask us two profound questions, but one of those questions literally means everything in the world. One of those questions means literally everything in the world. Now, we know, we know because we are on this side of the cross and we have the, the scriptures and we've, we're, we're familiar with some sense of redemptive history. We know what's going on. So when these questions are asked in the text, we kind of already know the answer. They seem to be very obvious. But what I want to challenge you and show you is that these questions are still just as profound and just as perplexing and as a stumbling block to us 
as they are to the world, as much so as it was in the first century. Let's look at the questions. Look at Luke chapter 9, and let's start reading together, starting in verse 18. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Everybody read with me, uh, with, with me in your Bibles. Now it happened, as he was praying, alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? Question one. And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others, the one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, Who do you say that I am? That's question two. And Peter answered, The Christ of God, period. And he strictly charged and commanded them, Tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Amen. May the Lord, by His Holy Spirit, move in our hearts this morning to hear and see His inerrant and inspired word to us for His glory and for our joy. Very profound and incredibly important questions that Jesus asked His disciples. Profound and important to, to not just them, but to all of Christianity. To all of Christianity and to every Christian alike. And so when Luke brings us to this point in the passage, at this point in his, in his book, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wants us to ask the question in our hearts over and over as we read and we engage this gospel, who do you say that I am? This is the reason why Luke kind of steers off a little bit from where Matthew and Mark go. Matthew and Mark actually go into like six other events, I think it was, before, uh, before they get to this particular event. And the reason is, is because Luke is really highlighting and emphasizing to us to answer this question of the identity of Jesus Christ. Who is he? Who is he? If you remember last week, we said um, at this point here in chapter 9, Jesus is, is getting to the end of his Galilean ministry, and, and then he is going to be setting his face toward, toward Jerusalem, which we know that to be the cross, to the Passion Week, where Christ will be led to the cross. So knowing what was coming what was about to be set before them, what was about to, about to transpire being pointed toward the cross, Luke and Jesus is, is pointing us to have us understand who Jesus is. They needed to know who Jesus was. We need to know who Jesus is. It is foundational and, and how we live our life, how we respond to life, how we understand and interpret this world, we must know precisely, clearly, who Christ is. So this morning as we unpack our passage, we must be confronted with the clear identity of who Jesus is. 
It is not only the question to his disciples that day, but it is the question to each and every one of us, who do you say that I am? And to do so, I want to show you three things from this text. I do not do this very often, but for those who like this, I'm going to give you a little alliteration, right? I don't do this often. Prayer, profession, and plan. Eh? Like that, Bill? Doesn't happen often. Doesn't rhyme, though, does it? Is this supposed to rhyme? Okay, good. Okay, so prayer, profession, and plan. Let's start with, with prayer. You see that in verse 18. This is my shortest point of of the morning. But I think it is one of the most important points. Because we don't want to minimize this this point here that we want to just kind of read right over and kind of get right to the profession or get right to the question. We must see right here that Jesus, as it was happening, he was out praying. This is important. This is very important. And as we have gone through uh, Luke, we might have breezed over this same kind of phraseology uh, over and over again throughout Luke, that Jesus has gone out on several occasions six times throughout the Gospel of Luke, and I think four already for us, he has already gone out and, and prayed. And this is such a, a, a marker for us. This is supposed to be a, a warning light, a blinker, a highlight for us, an indicator. Because when Jesus goes out to pray, it should tell us that something huge is about to happen. Something big is about to happen. Every time Jesus goes out and prays. Now, now listen, that doesn't mean Jesus only prayed six times in this three years. But what Luke is emphasizing to us is to be, to be paying attention, to anticipate what's about to happen. Six times in, Gospels, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus went out and prayed. And yeah, listen, it's absolutely important for us to see, yeah, Jesus goes out and prays, and therefore if Jesus needs to pray, then we should pray. But the most important point why he's highlighting it is to show us that something big is about to happen. In Luke chapter 3, when Jesus went out into the wilderness and met John, John the Baptist. And while he was with John, he was baptized. And then he prayed. And when he prayed, that's when the the heavens opened and God declared him to be his son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. In Luke chapter 6, before Jesus called the 12 disciples. Do you remember what he did before he called his 12 disciples? He went out and prayed. That's an an important decision. He went out and prayed and asked the Lord's wisdom and the Lord's will and for the Holy Spirit to lead him in the choosing of the 12. And he actually went out to the mountain and prayed all night long. Last week, we saw that before Jesus fed the 5,000, what did he do? He prayed. He prayed. He prayed, prayed publicly. You know, he prayed publicly, but he prayed. And what we will see in uh, a couple weeks is that Jesus will go out and pray on the Mount of Transfiguration before he is shown in his uh, glorified state. We also will see, I think, the one we're most familiar with is in Luke chapter 22 when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane after the Passover meal. He prayed. 
knowing what was before him, that he was about to go to the cross. What he was about to endure, he was praying for the Lord's will to be done and not his will to be done. Jesus, when he goes out and he prays, and Luke highlights that for us, it is to tell us and to tell you to listen up and pay attention that something significant is about to happen here. Can you see that in the passage then? Can you, can you see the significance of what's about to happen in our passage and why Jesus would go out and to pray? So let me ask you, are you ready? Are you, are you, are you ready? Like, like the, the movie of the year that you've been waiting for to come out, you go to the movie theater and you're sitting there and you're waiting for the commercials to come and, and, and or the commercials are over and all of a sudden the lights dim and the THX sign comes up and you're like, Yes, and you're on the edge of your seat. And just like that, are you ready in anticipation about what God is about to show us, what Jesus is about to do, and the questions that Jesus is about to ask his disciples? Are you ready? Something big is about to happen. We don't know what Jesus prayed for specifically. In fact, one of the really the only prayers that we know of Jesus is actually in the Garden of Gethsemane. We don't know what he prayed, but I'm pretty sure he was praying for his boys. I'm pretty sure knowing that the, the question that he was going to ask of its significance, he knew of its significance, that it was the Holy Spirit that was going to have to reveal this truth to them. In John chapter 17, which is Jesus' high priestly prayer, we're not going to turn there, but I encourage you to read it later. It sounds a whole lot like what Jesus would have prayed that day. But here's what's cool about John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, not only is he praying for his apostles, but he is also praying for us. And he was praying for us that, that we would be ready. That our, the eyes of our hearts and our minds would be enlightened by the Holy Spirit to confess Jesus as Lord. And Jesus went out and prayed. Jesus is still praying for us. He's praying for you and he's praying for me this morning. Are you ready. The second point is profession. I told you that was going to be my short one. The second one we see is, we see the profession. And this begins the, the question and answer time. This is where the questions come in. In verse 18, Jesus starts out with the first question. He says, who do the crowds say that I am? Now the disciples give different answers. And, and apparently this was, a, this was a pressing question because there were already assumed answers that the crowd had. There were already, everyone was still trying to figure out who this man was. Who is this guy? And the first answer that was coming up, probably the most widespread one, the one that most people believe is they, they think you're John the Baptist. Now, now, to be called John the Baptist or to, for people to believe that you might be John the Baptist, that's a huge compliment. Like that's, a, that's a huge compliment. John was a pretty awesome guy. John was a faithful guy. And even to the Jews, they, they, they loved John. John would baptize them. John would preach to them. John was like a, a prophet to them. John was not afraid to speak out against the, uh, the, the big wigs of religion. Yeah, give it to him, John. Right? We, we get behind that guy. Right? He's not, a, um, you know, he's, he's, he's not one of them. 
He's going to drain the Jerusalem swamp. He's that kind of guy. John wasn't even afraid to call out Herod in his philandering. That's, we, like, we like them. Yeah, call out that half-Gentile on his sin who doesn't, who doesn't know the word of God, who doesn't live holy like us. John was a good guy. This was saying a lot that they believed that, that, that John was, 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 that he possibly was John the Baptist. Now, if you look a few, uh, a few verses back in Luke chapter 9, John was actually another one of those responses that, that Herod got when he asked the question, because he asked the same question. Who is this? He was perplexed. Who is this guy? Who is this guy doing all these crazy things in my kingdom? And some people said he might be John the Baptist. Some people say he's... He's Elijah. Some others say he's some other, uh, um, some other prophet uh, raised uh, again, some other great uh, prophet. Now, can you imagine if you're Herod, you're the one who just beheaded John, and then you find out that this guy could be John? Whoa. Maybe you should have thought through that one a little bit clearer. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. But... The Jews respected John. He was a prophet. He was a man of God. He wasn't afraid to to speak the truth. He died for his convictions. They liked John. This was a high compliment to Jesus. The people also said that he was uh, Elijah. Elijah of the Old Testament, he was a very powerful prophet of of the Old Testament. And just like John, he, he stood up to sinful kings and sinful queens of Israel. Ahab and Jezebel. He also stood up against the, the false gods that were invading Israel and leading people away. You might remember the story of, uh, of, of his confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, or Carmel, depending on what candy bar you're eating. Remember, so this was another high compliment to, to Jesus. And they thought that, that Elijah was going to come back, right? Elijah didn't die, if you remember. Elijah was taken up. He was like Enoch. I mean, but he went up in a chariot of fire, I think it was. I mean, he just kind of went up, and Elisha said bye, and he put on his coat, and he became the, the next prophet. Elijah didn't die. And, and Malachi even gave very strong evidence to look for an Elijah-type person to, to come. So this is a huge compliment that the Jews would consider Jesus to maybe be Elijah. They loved Elijah. And then there were others who probably didn't want to say it was John or say it was Elijah, and they would say, uh, he's just one of the, the, uh, another great prophet that has arisen or another one of the prophets of old that, is, that has come back. Don't know which one. I can't pinpoint which one, but one of those. And, and that's another great compliment. I mean, to be a, to be a prophet in Israel was, was a big deal. A great title of respect. Someone sent by God himself to proclaim God's message. Now today, if you call someone a prophet, other people are going to think that you're drinking the funny green Kool-Aid. Or was it red? I can't remember. Grape, maybe cherry, I don't know. You're drinking the funny Kool-Aid if you call someone a prophet today, but back then if you called someone a prophet, that's saying something. Because you're in line with Moses. You're in line with Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos and Hosea and on and on. That is a huge compliment. So let me throw this out at you. 
Isn't this exactly what our world has done with Jesus? Just as perplexed as, as Herod in asking the same questions, yet getting the same answers. You know, it's very hard to find someone. It would be very hard for you to find someone, even I think at the university, to, if you ask them, what is your general opinion of Jesus? Jesus Christ, what's your general opinion of him? You're going to have a very hard time finding someone to say, he was a dirtbag. They're not going to say it. They're generally going to say, I think he was, a, he was a good teacher. He spoke good things. He's a good example. He a, he's a, 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 was a great guy. He died for what he believed in. He lived for what he believed in. And all of those things are good things. Those, all of those things are, are good compliments. A good moral teacher. He's worth reading and even following in some of those things. Even other religions have a high regard for Jesus. Muslims call him a, a good prophet. But to most people, Jesus is just another good moral example of heroism like a Captain America or a Spider-Man. He does things what's right. But the problem, though, and we know this in the, in the text, the problem, and we know this in the Bible, the problem is, is not that their answers were disrespectful about who Jesus is. The problem with their answers is that they didn't go far enough. They didn't go far enough on who Jesus is. All of our answers, as good as they may be, will always fall short of the truth if it's not according to the gospel. And it's not the right answer that we get from Peter in the next sentence. The right answer makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? It makes all the difference in the world. Look at verse 20. In verse 20, the next question, what we're really going to see here is Jesus, Jesus really isn't concerned about what other people think of him. He doesn't care what the, what the crowds really think of him. He already knows. He knew those answers. But what Jesus was concerned about, Jesus was concerned about, but what do y'all say who I am? Guys, what do you say that I am? I want to know what is on your hearts. What do you believe? Church, this is one of the greatest questions and one of the most important questions that we can answer. And how we answer that question makes all the difference in the world. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter what your friends say, your family, your co-workers. He doesn't care. What he cares about is what we say and believe he is. That is the most significant and the most eternal significant question that we could answer and be asked. So we know the answer. They ask the question, and, and Peter answers point blank. You are the Christ of God. And Jesus says, that's right. You got it. Man, that's what I was praying for. Amen. I, I can't imagine the excitement of Jesus saying, thank you, Holy Spirit. Praise God. Or he would say, praise Father. But yeah. So, if you think about that, what an excitement that Jesus just affirms it. Yes, that's right. That is who I am. And Matthew really shows us that he wholeheartedly acknowledges the Peter's confession. He wholeheartedly acknowledges the, the confession. In fact, he even tells us where that confession came from. That confession came from the Holy Spirit. It didn't come from flesh and blood. He says, Peter, you, you have no help there. Not your blood, not your flesh, not your mind. None of that is, is no help to you in answering this question. And the same thing for us. It is no help for us in answering this question. 
It is the Holy Spirit that reveals to us. Now here's what's shocking, and I think I already kind of alluded to this, but here's what's shocking. is not that Peter would think that he was the Messiah, but what's shocking is Jesus would say, yep, that's me. Think of, think of how shocking that is. How shocking it was for Peter to say that he was the Christ, but for Jesus to actually acknowledge it. Because what Jesus was saying, Christ is not his last name. Christ is, is, the, 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 um, is the English way of saying Christos. And Christos for Greek is, for, is Messiah. And Messiah in Hebrew means the anointed one, the big A. The anointed one of God. And everyone in the Old Testament that was anointed, they were kings. Jesus is king. So this is what they were confessing. And Jesus to acknowledge that is pretty shocking. Now, Luke has been cluing us into this reality. This isn't the first time that we've, we've caught this. This isn't like catching us off surprise or catching us off guard or catching us by surprise in Luke 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 11, the angels declared at the birth of Jesus to, remember, the, the lowly shepherds. What did they say? They said, for unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, Christ the Lord. Same chapter, chapter 2, verse 26, a man named Simeon waited his whole entire life in the temple because the Holy Spirit promised him that he would not die without seeing the Lord's anointed. And he did. When the baby Jesus was brought into the, the temple to be given to the Lord as being the first son, the Holy Spirit then revealed instantly again to Simeon, here he is, Simeon. And he pronounced blessings over him. Chapter 4, verse 18. When Jesus was in the synagogue in his hometown, he even said it then. In Isaiah 61, he read it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. In two other places, we also see it in chapter 4 and in chapter 8. He has also confessed that he is the Son of God. But do you remember by who? Does anybody remember? By demons. Demons confess that he is the Christ. You are the Son of God. It didn't do no good for them. But for, but for the first time, it was being laid out really clear to the disciples on who Jesus was. So it's like, as much as we have seen the pieces of the puzzle throughout Luke, now the, the, the whole answer is being revealed to us on who he is as much as it was for the disciples so that they would have a clear picture on who Jesus is. So Jesus flats out asks him, what a kindness of him actually, to, to flat out ask him to air it out, to get it over with. All right, I know what everyone else is saying about me, but what do you say? Who do you say that I am? That's right, I am the Christ. Because he wants them to know he wants them to know who is their master. You have to hear this. That the confession that Peter makes that day, when boiled it down to it, that is the heart of Christianity. To confess Jesus as the Christ is the heart of Christianity. It is the confession that Christendom has been built on. It is what we still confess today. It is in our confession. 
It is in our uh, statement of faith. It's what we confess. It's what the church has confessed throughout the ages. And it's one of the tests that we certainly can look at if a church is a church or if they're not. Do they confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Christ, as the Lord? And so this is why Jesus is honing in on them with this really important question. This is why Luke is spotlighting it for us to read. Because the world has all kinds of answers on who Jesus is. The world has all kinds of answers that He is John the Baptist or Elijah or another great prophet or, or a, a, another prophet or a teacher or a great example of justice and righteousness. He taught people how to love. He taught people how to be a good example of, of self-sacrifice. Everybody has a good answer in some way on who Jesus is, especially where we live. Where we live here in Statesboro, you will not probably find one person that will say one thing against Jesus. They'll always say something nice about him. And most of it will be true. But the real question is, is there more? And that's what Jesus was honing at. This is where he's leading us. You know, this time of the year as we're getting ready for Easter Sunday, you're, you're going to notice kind of this question creeping back up into our popular culture. History Channel will run their specials on the historical Jesus. National Geographic will, will show us how Jesus lived in the first century and then how Jesus probably really never died. They'll show us... <laughs> exactly, Eva. I even saw this week while I was at the gym working out, they had CNN on, and CNN, instead of actually doing anything with Jesus, they just said, we're just going to talk about the Pope this year. We're just going to focus on it. So, so happy Easter. Check out his hat. All right, that's kind of what they're saying. The point is, it doesn't matter if you think Jesus is John the Baptist, Elijah, a prophet, a good teacher. None of those will ever do him justice. None of them will ever really live up to who he is because Jesus says, I am the Messiah. And when Jesus makes this claim that I am the Messiah, he didn't make it, ever make a claim that I'm just a good prophet or that I'm just a, a good teacher or I'm just a good guy that you might want to look, consider following. Jesus said, I am the Messiah. And that demands us to look at that and answer the question, do you really believe that he is the Son of God? And as much as this is a confession and a foundation of all Christianity, more than that, it's a question for each and every one of us to answer. That we must answer. I know for most, most of us, we've, we've grown up in church and we've been taught from a young age that Jesus is Lord. I was taught that from a young age. Even in a, a few years of a Catholic upbringing, I was taught these things. I've been taught that Jesus was the Son of God. I was taught that He was the Messiah. I would even say it with my own, uh, own lips. And we will find a culture that will even proclaim that. People, thousands of people around us will always say, we'll consider, yeah, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah, I believe Jesus is the Christ and, and the Messiah. We've always known this in many ways. But how do you know you really believe that? How do you know you really believe that Jesus is the Christ? Is it just the confession of our lips? 
that Jesus was requiring of his disciples? I don't think so, because he went out and prayed. He knew, once again, that this was a spiritually discerned answer by the Holy Spirit. Romans 10, 9 helps us with this just a little bit. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, so believe and confess, you see that, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see how those two things come together? You see how the, the Bible can, helps us quantify what real belief is? Let me, let me ask you a couple simple questions to, to, help us, to help us get through this. First question, do you really, really believe that Jesus is the Messiah? And here's what I mean by that. Is Jesus the hinge on which your whole life turns and moves? To believe that Jesus is the Messiah means that he is the, the hinge on which your whole life moves, like a hinge on, on a door that moves the whole door. Is your relationship with Jesus the very thing in which your whole life moves? You know, we all have specific times in, in our lives where, where it seemed like everything just kind of dramatically changed. Sometimes it's in, in an instant Sometimes it's, it's, a, it's a progression over, uh, over a certain amount of time, but when everything changed, some of you have made a decision, right? You're, you can even point back. I remember making this one decision, and that one decision has like, had you know, effects. I can see it, good or bad. I've, I've seen, I can look back and say that this has, has long-term effects. For me, I remember in the summer of 1998 that the, the Lord made it very clear to me of my calling into ministry. I didn't realize at the time how much that would change me, but I see it now. I can see the effects of that now. I remember certain books that I've read that have radically changed me. And, and what I believe and the questions that I would ask and the answers that I was, that I was receiving. What has changed you in the direction of your life? Can you say honestly that your encounter and your relationship with Jesus Christ has been more decisive than those things? Had it been more decisive in changing you and moving you in a direction? That's what that first question means. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? We, we can see alone, that, that confession alone, how much that changed the disciples. We see how much that confession alone moves and shapes and shit in the, the church. Let me ask you another question. Is Jesus and what he offers in the gospel what you desire more than anything else? We have, we have all kinds of things that we desire. We have all kinds of things in this life that we want and things that we, we, we love. But yet, do we desire or want those things more than Jesus and what he has given us? Is there any one thing that we really know we want? Or if we can be really honest with ourselves, is there anything that we want that is more greater or we desire more than Jesus himself and what he has offered in the gospel? And if we're honest... If we're really honest, isn't it really easy in Statesboro to say Jesus is Lord? And not to kick Statesboro, but I mean, we just live in this culture. I love it. I love being here. 
But, but isn't it easy where it's easy to, to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and yet their lives to answer those questions would, live, would be completely contrary to the confession that they make? So this question, who do you say that I am, is being very pressed, it's going to be pressed very hard on us this morning. It's being pressed on us very hard this morning so that we would test ourselves. It is good for you this morning, brother and sister, to test yourself with those questions and to answer, who do you say that I am? There are all kinds of answers and voices out there that are trying to feed this answer to feed you an answer, including our own heart. Including our own hearts. So the first point we saw Jesus' prayer. The second point we saw Peter's confession, the confession of the church, the profession. And then we see his plan. This is crazy. Look at verse 21. You can see it there. Now that Jesus has been laid out, I mean, just clearly identified, this is, this is who I am, and now everybody's on the, the, the same page. He gives us this, this plan. He gives us, he gives us this, this plan so that, um, um, so that he kind of lets them know what this means now to be the Messiah. Now the disciples, they're thinking something completely different. They still have this, 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 this Jewish-Israelite mindset and this is what's going on in their minds. They believe that, that when the Messiah came, that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to put Israel back on top. That all the, the dirty dog Romans will be vanquished and kicked out of the promised land and, and the Messiah, God's, man, or God's son, is going to restore his people. So the disciples are ready. Jesus, what's the plan? Let's go. You want us to go back out again? We just came back. We will go back out and we will tell everybody that the Messiah is here. And of course, there's probably a little pride there too. That He told us. He didn't tell the Pharisee. He just told us. And I'm just a fisherman or a tax collector. What's the plan, Jesus? And on this side of the, the cross and this far along in Christianity, it's, it's, it's not that big of a surprise to us because we know the end of the story, but what Jesus tells them just stuns the disciples. In fact, it's so stunning. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells them, I'm going to die, guys. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die on the cross. Pete, what does Peter say? Peter says, uh-uh. Not my Lord. Not happening to, to my Lord. You know what I just confessed. That's not true, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Jesus, knowing, I think, even himself, remembering the temptation of Satan, Satan tempting him to find the easy way from the cross, he says, get behind me, Satan. Meaning, Peter, you're a moron. I.e., your plan is not my plan. My plan is the Father's plan. My plan as the, as the Messiah it's the plan that God has set out from the very beginning. From all of eternity, God set out the plan of redemption of his people. A plan of not of a conquering Messiah yet, but a suffering Messiah. And Jesus tells them and commands them emphatically, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone what's been, been revealed to you. This is, this, is a good, this is a good explanation for us and a good evidence of why we know the Bible's true. 
Because any other person out there, by the way, there were people in the first century, just as we have weirdos today, that claimed to be the Messiah. But all of those people would always tell their disciples to go out and tell everybody. Right? They wanted their video to go viral. They wanted their tweets to be retweeted. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone who I am because I know what they believe and they're going to mess it up. I know what you believe and you're going to mess it up. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. Keep it on the hush. Keep it on the DL. So for 250 years prior to Jesus' coming, the Jews were anticipating a coming Messiah. They were eagerly looking for him. They knew their Old Testament. They knew the prophecies. They can feel the anticipation of his coming, especially with the Roman occupation. God was probably doing something. Right? These dirty oppressors, these unholy, unworthy Gentiles who have defiled the land and its people, all these sinners and Roman sympathizers are going to have to be judged. And this is the Messiah that they were, they were looking, but that was not God's plan. Eventually, God would come. It's in Christ, and we know this. He's coming again. He's going to come in power as a mighty warrior, destroying all evil and judging all sinners according to the, his own righteousness, but not yet. Jesus says, my plan is not your plan. My plan is not Israel's plan. My plan is God's redemptive plan that has started from all eternity's past that was first foretold to you in Genesis chapter 3. You caught a glimpse about what's about to happen. And see, this is where the holy people of Israel got it wrong. You see, they're, they're, the, the real problem was not the Romans. The, the real problem was not the Romans and their oppressive nature. The, the real problem that the Messiah was going to deal with was not the Romans, but the real problem is all of us. Is all of us. Jew, Gentile, slave, oppressor, doesn't matter. All of us are sinners, and we are the problem. We are all dirty, unholy, unclean. And it's easy for us to have this mindset that the Jews had, us versus them. We are good, they're evil. We're superior because of our morals and because of our race and because of where we live. But evil does not lie between us and them. Evil lies in all human hearts. This is what the Messiah was here to do. Jesus affirmed and confirmed to, to Peter and the gang that he is the Messiah, telling them to keep it on the DL, and he gives them the plan in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day he would be raised. This is the plan. What a shocker. What a disappointment, right, for them. But Jesus is telling them that his plan was always greater than kicking the Romans out. The Messiah would come to suffer, be rejected, would die, would be raised on the third day because he was more like the suffering servant of Jeremiah and the exact fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 53. Jesus tells them that the plan that, the plan that, that he has is better and greater than the plan that they have. In the moment that Peter confesses uh, 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 Jesus, he is telling them, listen guys, everyone in Israel 
the teachers, the leaders, the theologians, the priests, the lawyers, everyone in any kind of prominent position, anyone that you think has any kind of authority over you, every expert of the Hebrew Bible is going to tell you that your confession is wrong. They're going to tell you that your confession is is wrong, and then they are going to kill me. And I'm going to suffer and be rejected, and I'm going to die. And I'm going to die not because of an angry mob, though. There's a very important word there in that verse. The very important word says, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things in order to save you. It's not the angry mob that's going to kill him. Jesus, as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, he willingly offers himself up according to God's sovereign will and plan for redemption. The Son of Man must die. All the suffering he experiences and is suffering that is due to us All the rejection that that He endures is the rejection that that we deserve. And the death that He dies on the cross is the death that we should have had. And His atoning work on the cross is, is not just for Israel, but for every tribe and every tongue and nation and boy and girl and man and woman that says, yes, you are Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And not only will their sins be removed and be pardoned, but they will be forgiven. And they will have a a foreign righteousness, a righteousness that is not their own, that will be imputed upon them, and they will be welcomed into God's family. No matter if you are Jew or Gentile, you will be welcomed into the kingdom of God as co-heirs with Christ. We will be called children of the living God and will live with Him in glory and joy both now and forevermore. But He says more there, doesn't He? Because not only is He going to suffer and be rejected and die, but the Messiah will also be raised again. And the resurrection is the evidence, is the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. It is the evidence that Jesus is the the Christ, the Son of the living God. So therefore, the resurrection is, is our objective, real evidence. As real as anything that we see before us. It's the real objective evidence that we can have confidence and assurance that He is the Christ. And therefore, our confession that we make that He is the Christ is true. And therefore, all of our lives can hinge on that confession. We don't just make this one-time confession in a prayer that only happens once and then that's it. It's the confession that turns and changes our whole life. And this Messiah, this Messiah which is the, the pinnacle of all of our desires and all of our delights is the one who has overcome death on our behalf and sin on our behalf. This was an important event. This isn't something for us to just take, take lightly. This is an, these are extremely important questions. Can you see now why Jesus was praying? 
Can you see now, understand in John chapter 17, why he's praying for us when we encounter questions like this from the Word of God? You know, throughout our lives, we are going to consider many important questions And how we answer and respond to those questions has the potential to have significant impact on on our life. It can change our trajectory in just a moment. And some of those questions we elevate as being more important than anything. Where we go to school? What should we major in? What job should I take? Who should I marry? Where to live, etc. But beloved... I contend with you this morning that there will never be a more important question than Jesus looking at you face to face in the scripture and asking, who do you say that I am? Not what anyone else believes, not what your grandmother has believed or what your father has believed, but who do you say that he is? If your answer is you are the Christ of God, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, then there is a deep well of joy that has been opened to you, right? There's a deep well of joy that has just opened to us. A depth of joy that is inexhaustible, that still keeps us kind of coming to the well, asking questions like I was saying earlier. It's never-ending. We never get to the bottom of it. It's a confession that is ever-expanding in the reality of our life that continues to produce more joy and more glory. But if your answer is not that, or maybe, maybe that's your profession of your lips, but the reality of your life does not line up with what you consider your profession, then I pray this morning that as Jesus is asking you that question right now again, how do you answer? Who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and such mercy to look at each one of us this morning through the scope of your scripture and ask us, who do you say that I am? And oh Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit there would be a joy that bubbles up this morning if we are confessing that Christ is Lord and we truly know that our whole lives have been hinging upon that reality. And Father, I pray for those who are wrestling with that now. Would you give them by your grace confidence, confidence by the Holy Spirit to answer as Peter answered. Maybe not knowing the, the complete, the, everything and not knowing the plan and not knowing all, the, all that what's going to have an effect later on down the life, but oh God, would you give them the faith to confess Christ as Lord. The people that we know in our lives, oh God, that we are sharing the gospel with, people we want to share the gospel with, oh God, will we get to that point? And by your grace, would you open their hearts and their minds Thank you for your word. Thank you for your plan. Thank you for praying for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.